Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. Good morning again, church. I am grateful for the opportunity to be continuing our sermon series, Seven Letters to the Church, which is looking at Jesus's words to seven local churches in Asia Minor. We read these words in the book of Revelation, chapter one through three. Now, to me, it's no coincidence that the book of Revelation begins with a word to local churches. I I believe that this gives us a clue into how to read the rest of the book, which is full of imagery and symbolism that can be difficult to interpret at times. Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, which I would recommend you pick up if you plan on doing a deeper dive into the book of Revelation at any point. It's really easy to digest. He goes over five different approaches or lenses to which we read the book of Revelation, and I found them very helpful and insightful. The first lens that he says people take to the book of Revelation is called the predictive futurist. Now this lens, it it views the text as a code that represents future events. The original meaning wouldn't have been fully understood by the original audience and will only be revealed as these events happen. The other approach is the opposite, the preterist, and this views the text as a code similar to the prior, but the events represented by the code, they would have already have happened, and this lens views the symbolism and imagery in Revelation as events that have already been fulfilled in the first century. The other approach he says people take to the book of Revelation is the poetic or the theopoetic. Now this view sees the text as poetic language that's intended to express ultimate truths about God, about good and evil, and history and the kingdom of God. The next lens he highlights is called the theopolitical lens. Now, this view sees the text as a form of political protest and dissent against the Roman Empire that emerged during this time of persecution towards the church in the first century. Now, in this view, there's an emphasis placed on the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is an antithesis to the kingdoms of this world. And then the fifth lens, and this is what I really want to highlight this morning, is called the pastoral prophetic lens. This view sees the text as anchored in the past, but also meant to speak to every generation of readers. And so the imagery is seen as a challenge and a comfort by showing us, showing the church, a heavenly perspective of the events in the world throughout time. Now, all of these approaches to reading Revelation, I I believe that they teach us something about the nature of the book, but I would view the pastoral prophetic lens or approach as the most holistic approach to reading the text. Now, as I mentioned, I believe that it's no coincidence that the book begins with a rooted message to these local churches. And so hopefully that's helpful as we read the book of Revelation together and as you continue to study it and explore the text on your own. With that, let's jump into this morning's text, which we find in chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading in verse 7. And this records Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'd like to show you a map of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and these seven churches in Asia Minor, they're located in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so you'll see Philadelphia there on the bottom right. Now, there, there aren't many images of ruins from ancient Philadelphia because there's actually a modern city that sits atop most of the ancient ru ruins. And so there hasn't been much excavation of ancient Philadelphia. Now, a brief history of the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was built by a, a ruler in a neighboring city, Eumenes II, and he built the city, Philadelphia, in honor of his brother. He loved his brother. And in the name of Philadelphia, it translates to city of brotherly love. And it was known for its vineyards and theater. And in 17 AD, there was a historic event in the city of Philadelphia. There was a, a devastating earthquake in the region, and it just flattened the city. It absolutely destroyed Philadelphia. It, it also destroyed neighboring Laod Laodicea, which Adam is going to teach on next week. But Philadelphia was not as wealthy as Laodice Laodicea, and it didn't re receive as much aid from the Roman Empire to rebuild. And the citizens of Philadelphia were forced to evacuate the city and for a long time live in temporary structures and tents on the outside of the city. And, and because Philadelphia was situated along a major fault line in the area, earthquakes continued to be a major issue for the city, including some major earthquakes around 60 AD as well. Now, with that, let's look a bit closer at this letter, this word from Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. And I want to look at the first words of the letter and how Jesus introduces himself to the church and, and what, we, what we might learn from the way that Jesus introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia. Verse 7, and to the angel in the church, and a reminder, angel in the, in the Greek is, could be translated as messenger in Philadelphia, right? And these are the words of Jesus, the words of the Holy One, the True One. 
And so this is what I want to focus on here are, are Jesus's first words to the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one. Holy could be translated as other or separate than and true, authentic, and genuine. Now, I mentioned earlier that in the aftermath of the earthquake in 17 AD, the Roman Empire, they didn't provide the proper aid needed to fully rebuild Philadelphia. And this created a lot of animosity in the citizens of Philadelphia, the Philadelphians, you might say. They had a lot of animosity and deep trust, deep distrust in their governing authorities. Now, let's imagine for a moment and wonder what would it be like to live in a world where people feel like their government isn't doing all they can do to meet their needs in time of crisis. I wonder if we can imagine that. Or I wonder what it would be like to live in a world where there is a deep-rooted cynicism or, or lack of trust that government or politicians actually have your best interests in mind. Can we imagine for a moment what it would be like to live in a world like that? I don't know, we might have to work a little bit hard to imagine that. Now, it's to a people in that place with a deep-rooted cynicism and distrust in the governing authorities that Jesus reveals himself as the Holy One, the True One, which could be translated as the Authentic One, the one who you can rely on in the midst of a crisis, the one who you can rely on in the midst of uncertainty, one who is genuine, the one who when he speaks, his word can be trusted. He's the true one. Now, this would have been a timely and pertinent word to the church in Philadelphia, but I'm also guessing that there's a word in there for many of us as well. As, as followers of Jesus, we aren't promised a crisis-free life or a life in which the, the benevolence of the powers that be uh, are always going to be there for us, but we are secure in our relationship with Jesus, the true one, and that should bring us great comfort. In, in, in the next few verses, we're going to see a little bit more why that should bring us such great comfort. Verse 7 continues, and this is speaking of Jesus. Again, we're, we're learning how Jesus is revealing himself to this church in Philadelphia. He has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, the key, no pun intended, to Jesus's word to the church in Philadelphia is around this idea that he has the keys. He's one who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens and has in fact opened a door for the church in Philadelphia. Now there, there are a few things going on in this passage that are, are worth going through a little bit more slowly. First, Jesus has the keys. He's holding the keys. Now, the building where I work in downtown Burlington has a crazy amount of keys. I have a ridiculous set of keys 
for the building. There's a key to the front door and to the side door. There's keys to the restrooms. There's a key to my office. There's keys that unlock the push bar. There's a keypad for the alarm system. There's keys to the elevator. And in the winter, there's this extra door that's added to the mezzanine at the front of the building. And that's an, uh, an extra key that we need to add to the key ring. Well, in scripture, we see that Jesus has a set of keys as well. And in Matthew 16, verse 19, we read that Jesus has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Luke 11, verse 5, it speaks of Jesus having the key to knowledge. Revelation 1, verse 18, it says that Jesus holds the keys to Hades and hell. He has the keys to death. In Revelation 3, verse 7, right here, we read that he has the key of David. Revelation 9, verse 1, he has the key to the bottomless pit. And in Revelation 20, verse 1, he, Jesus is holding the key to the abyss. Jesus has an important set of keys. Now, back to this verse, verse 7. He, it says that Jesus has the key of David. Now, I want to read briefly Isaiah chapter 22 verse 22 and this is the only other place in all of scripture in which the key of David is mentioned and it's actually speaking prophetically of the Messiah Jesus it's speaking prophetically of who Jesus is Isaiah 22 verse 22 and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David he shall open and none shall shut this should sound familiar to us and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Now, there's another key that I have for the building downtown where I work, and it's called a master key. It can open and lock all of the doors. It's an important key. Now, to be honest, having this key kind of stresses me out because it is such an important key, and you have to take care of an important key like that. Now, I would imagine the key of David being of similar importance. Think of King David, or think of a king likely had many important rooms in his kingdom full of important things or treasures. And similarly, Jesus is revealed to the church in Philadelphia as the one who holds a key of great importance to them because they're a people in great need of doors being opened. Now, there are a few doors the Church of Philadelphia would have been concerned with being open. And so let's just go through what some of those doors might have been for the Church of Philadelphia. The first open door that Jesus provides for the Church in Philadelphia is a way of escape. Jesus provides a way to rescue, a, a way of salvation for the church in Philadelphia, an escape route, so to speak. Think of the image of an escape route being important to a population threatened by natural disaster. I grew up on the Big Island of Hawaii, and from time to time, we would get tsunami warnings in the Big Island. And if you were driving along the shoreline, many places there were evacuation routes from the shoreline to higher ground, to safe ground. Now. Thankfully, there were no tsunamis while I lived there and while I grew up in Hawaii. But there were escape routes 
in case they were needed, and having access to those routes was important. They had to be clear. The path had to be open in order for you to get to a safe place. Now, this would have been an uh, important door for the church in Philadelphia to have open, and there is a, a spiritual metaphor there, I believe, for the church in Philadelphia. Now, the next door that Jesus opens for the church in Philadelphia is an open door into God's family. Let's read verse 9 again. Verse 9 reads, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, what on earth is that, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie? Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, here we're seeing some similarities to the church in Smyrna, and Jesus' words to the church there, where followers of Jesus, they were being persecuted by the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders in their city, and they were being excluded from their people, likely family members and friends. Now, remember, many of the earliest followers of Jesus, they would have considered themselves to be Jews, but because of their belief in Jesus as Messiah, they were often persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And that's what we are seeing, and that's what we are seeing Jesus reference by speaking of the synagogue of Satan. He's speaking of the people of God, followers of Jesus, being persecuted for their belief in Jesus as Messiah by the religious leaders of the day. So it, it, it wasn't about Jew versus Christian, and many of these early followers of Jesus would have considered themselves Jewish as well. Now, I can imagine members of the Church of Philadelphia showing up to the synagogue on Sabbath only to be turned away and told that they may not enter. They got a door slammed in their face. That door was shut and they were not welcomed in into the family of God. They were not welcomed in to worship with their friends and their family because of their belief in Jesus as Messiah. Now, this would have not only brought on social shame for early followers of Jesus in Philadelphia, but it would have, in many cases, put their lives at risk. Now, in the first century, Jews had religious exemption from the edict issued by the Roman Empire to declare Caesar is Lord. It was in a uh, uh, empire propaganda slogan, and Jews had religious exemption from declaring Caesar as Lord. Now, if a follower of Jesus was kicked out of the synagogue, their name would have been removed, blotted out from the registry in the synagogue, and thus they would no longer be exempt from not having to declare Caesar is Lord, this empire propaganda edict, and this would have put their lives at great risk. And it's in this context that Jesus promises an open door into God's family. And I, I believe that there's an illusion there when it's speaking of Jesus holding the key of David, which in Isaiah 22 we see is a clear reference to the promised Messiah, a clear reference 
to Jesus. And so one of the doors that Jesus opens for the church in Philadelphia is an open door into God's family. They had been shut out from friends and family, and Jesus says, no, I am welcoming you into my kingdom. You are a brother. You are a sister. You are welcomed into God's family. The other door we see Jesus opening for the church in Philadelphia is an open door into the kingdom of God relationship and reality. An open door into kingdom of God relationship and reality. And we're going to conclude there this morning. But before we do, I want to pose a question for us to ponder this morning. Is there a door that you need God to open for you? And if you could name that door, what would it be? Is it a door to salvation? Is it a door into community and family? Is it a door from one reality into another? Or a door into a new awareness of God, his goodness, and his kingdom? Now, as you ponder that question today or, or throughout the week, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to look to the one who holds the key. Because I believe that perhaps, and it's okay to pray for open doors and to ask God to open doors for you. If you're looking for an open door, to name it and to be specific with God in your prayers. But also, if not of greater importance, is to look to Jesus, the one who holds the key. The one who can open the door. The one who can close the door and shut the door. To to work on and build trust and relationship with the one who holds the key, who can open the door. And so I want to look a bit more at this open door into kingdom relationship and reality. Let's read verse 8 again. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your works. Jesus sees his church. He sees the works of his church. And Jesus says this. He says that they only have a little power. It's this Greek word mikros that is used here for little. And it's where we get words like microscopic today. They just have an itty bitty amount of power. They're located in a city that's struggling to rebuild in the aftermath of a catastrophe, a people who are used to living in temporary structures and tents, a church who probably lost their ability to meet in person in an actual building. And despite all of that, Jesus sees them and he honors them because this, they didn't let their circumstances determine their capacity to love their neighbors their brothers, their sisters. They didn't let their, their circumstances determine or affect their keeping of Jesus' word, and they didn't deny Jesus even at the threat of great personal risk, whether social shame or political exe execution. Now, I don't know about you, but over the last several months, I can relate to Jesus's estimation of these Philadelphia's power rating, the Philadelphians power rating, Mikros, itty bitty. They just had a litty, 
itty bitty little amount of power, but in their lack of power, they refused to stop loving. They continued to rely on the one who holds the keys. Now that is encouraging and challenging to me. I know that the last year has been challenging for many of you, probably all of you, some perhaps more than others, but I have also observed you continue to love your neighbors, continue to be a church of brotherly and sisterly love, to continue to be uh, those who have what you might say little power, like me, if you're anything like me, but you've kept Jesus's word and you've drawn closer to the one who holds the keys. And I believe that Jesus has a word of comfort and hope for you this morning. Let's read this last bit of Jesus's word to the church in Philadelphia. But as we do, let's imagine perhaps a city where the buildings are leaning over and crumbling. This is a word from Jesus to a church in that city. Verse 12, to the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar a pillar, something sturdy, something stable, something that holds upright and brings security in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Imagine a people who would have been fleeing catastrophe. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, the promised future that we then see in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is giving them a foretaste of that hope here, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name, the one who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is promising stability. They had to flee the city. They had to run from their circumstances, but Jesus is promising them security, stability, that they would be a pillar. They would no longer have to to flee calamity. Imagine the comfort that would have brought the church to a church located in an area where their future was under constant threat and uncertainty. Jesus, the true one, the one whose word you can rely on, they would be secure. This is the word that Jesus gives them. His word is, is, is of course, a foretaste of a future promise, but it is a word that enables them to be steadfast in their faith and their resolve to be a kingdom people and to continue to love their neighbors, their brothers, their sisters. And I believe that Jesus has a word of comfort and hope for us today. And that enables us in our resolve and in our faith as well to be steadfast. Let's conclude with a benediction this morning, church. May you come to know the holy and true one, the authentic one, the one whose word you can rely on. As you pray for open doors, may your eyes be focused on the one who holds the keys. May you behold the open door which leads you into greater freedom, grace, and salvation, a door that only Jesus can open. May you be comforted when you find yourself excluded and threatened by the world around you, reminded that you are welcomed into God's family with open arms. And may you know that Jesus sees you in what little power you may have and that the word he comes to you with is one of hope 
and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen, church. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com.